It's an ongoing discussion in my house about me struggling with the darkness here in St. Louis during the winter. I'm just not used to not having the sun out, and so these past few days have just been glorious for me. And um, when I look outside on those overcast days in the fall and in the winter and early spring before things start to bloom, I'm longing for the life that is coming to the trees and the grass and the sunlight because it's almost like the world has died for a few, se- for a few months during the season of winter. Death is almost always a topic we shy away from. We don't really like talking about it. It's not fun to talk about death. Um, we're not comfortable with it. Now, maybe an undertaker is comfortable with it, but the rest of us, is just, are, we're, just, we're just not comfortable talking about death. And one of the reasons is because we fear death. Now, some people can say, I don't fear death, but, and that may be true, but none of us want it, right? None of us want death. I mean, if, if we do, there's something wrong. There's, there's something wrong inside of us. And sometimes people want death because of that, because life is miserable. Life is not what they want it to be. But death is an intruder. It disrupts life. Because that's what death does to you. It rocks your faith. It just it calls into question the things you think you believe. Is that, is that really waiting for me when I die? Well, it's tough for us because it's, an intruder into our lives. Mary and Martha and Lazarus were close friends of Jesus. Jesus really loved these people. You know, uh, Scripture tells us that, you know, Jesus was conveying the love of God, but there is a type of really intimate focus here of the story of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus because John wants us to know that Jesus really loved these people. Like, he had an intimate relationship with these people. He was close to these people. They had a close, intimate, personal connection. He loved them. John tells us that. And they send this message to Jesus telling him that Lazarus, their brother and his friend, is gravely ill. So they didn't go to Jesus personally. They send a message, either a messenger or a note. I'm not exactly sure. But they send a message to Jesus that Lazarus is gravely ill. Now, if he just had a cold or he wasn't feeling well under the weather, they wouldn't have sent that message. But clearly, especially in those days, you know when someone is not long for this world. And that was the case with Lazarus. And when Jesus hears it, he says, this illness does not lead to death, but it's for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, as I studied and researched this passage this week for our sermon, I found that most scholars believe that it took a while to track Jesus down. So it wasn't like you send the message out, and that afternoon they're at Jesus' door. You send the message out, and it may take a few hours or a few days to find the person. Not only because travel was not like it is now, but you have to track the person down. You know, on, in the ancient world, on uh, battlefields, uh, you may have sent a messenger back to home base saying, we won the battle, and it takes four months to get there, or three months. And so messages did not travel quickly. And so most scholars believe that when Jesus was finally tracked down with the message, Lazarus was likely already dead. By the time Jesus got the message that Lazarus was ill, he likely had already died. 
may have been a couple days. And yet Jesus makes this statement, this illness does not lead to death, but is for the glory of God that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And so by the time the messenger takes Jesus' message back to Mary and Martha to discover Lazarus had died, he may have not even bothered repeating Jesus' words. Right? It would seem practical. If you were the messenger, it took you two days to find Jesus, he says the, the illness is not unto death, you get back to find Lazarus is dead, you just probably don't even bother saying that, maybe. Either, though, when we look at the statement, we think, well, Jesus was either mistaken or he really thinks that Lazarus is going to pull through. Because on the surface, just like a flat reading of the passage, like Jesus, it looks like Jesus is saying, don't worry, this isn't going to kill him. And it does. So either Jesus is mistaken and he thinks Lazarus is going to pull through, or there's something else going on in the mind of Jesus that he has not fully revealed in that statement, like he believes death is temporary, or he believes that physical death is not the real death that matters, or he believes that death is somehow reversible. All of those things are pregnant, obviously, in that statement of Jesus. He is thinking about death differently than they're thinking about death, because just on the kind of like the skeptical reading, we would just say, well, he was wrong, because Lazarus died. Now again, John wants us to know that Jesus really loves these people, and in verse 5 tells us, Jesus loved Mary and Martha, Mary and her sister, excuse me, Martha and her sister and Lazarus. But he doesn't rush off to see them. He stays where he is. Jesus delays, and Mary and Martha wait. Now it's a strange reading, right? Um, he says, Jesus really loved them, so he stayed where he was. It just doesn't make sense. I mean, it doesn't fit well. And I looked in the Greek, I'm like, well, maybe this is like a mistranslation or something, right? Like maybe the so, because Jesus really loved them. So he stayed where he was. I mean, but that's, that's what's there. Jesus really loved them, so he stayed where he was. You'd think Jesus really loved them, so he immediately got up from where he was and bolted out the door to go be with them. But he doesn't do that. Mary and Martha wait one day, Two days, three days, four days. And now it's too late. The funeral had already taken place. In fact, the seven days of intense Jewish mourning was already past the halfway point by this time. It was beyond the point of no return when Jesus decided to go to Bethany, their hometown. Now, I don't know about you, but it seems like God is in the habit of allowing circumstances to go beyond the point of no return. I, mean, I just don't know about you, but like in my life, like I'm like looking and waiting for God to like make a detour to intervene right before disaster happens or something like that. And often God is pleased to just like let, like you know, just for like an illustration, he just, he just pushes things right to the edge, you know? And it often feels for us like they go over the edge and like the point of no return. For some reason, God does that a lot. That's just the way God functions. God likes doing those kinds of things, and if you, you may have a testimony like that in your own life 
where things were beyond repair, it seemed like, or they had gone past the point of no return. Maybe right now you're experiencing something where, yeah, they went past the point of no return and God hasn't done anything about it. That happens too. The funeral has happened. They're mourning Lazarus by now. And in verse 11, he tells the disciples, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he'll recover. And Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. Supernaturally, Jesus knows Lazarus is dead. No one has told Jesus that because the message he received was Lazarus was ill, gravely ill. But Jesus, being who he is, the Son of God, having a supernatural intuition, being informed by the Holy Spirit, he knows Lazarus has died. And he has deliberately waited and delayed until Lazarus has died, until the circumstances have gone past the point of no return, deliberately. It was intentional. It wasn't just because he was tired or he was doing other things. And listen to what he says. He says, he told, tells them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I am glad that I wasn't there, so that you may believe. Lazarus has died, and I am glad. I mean, doesn't it seem like the words died and glad don't belong in the same sentence? Right? Lazarus has died, and I am glad. Lazarus has died, and I am glad. Jesus is about to push them, expand them, challenge them in a profound way that they obviously need. I don't know, but it, it, it stands to reason that when things fall apart, it is often a part of God's plan, and God, because he's God, and knows how to retrieve some type of glory from every circumstance, sometimes is glad about it. He's glad about it. Because when things go so far beyond the point of being fixed, and for all intents and purposes, it would destroy us, God uses it as an opportunity to grow our faith, to draw us closer to him, to challenge and increase us, and to bond our relationship with him in a way that apparently is impossible otherwise. Lazarus is dead, and I am glad. On the surface, it sounds callous, but he's about to stretch their faith. He says, I'm glad Lazarus died so that you may believe. And so he travels to Bethany, and when Martha heard that Jesus was nearby, she quietly and discreetly leaves the house and her sister. So if you can imagine the host, you've got people there mourning, and you know, some people are wired that way, even though they're mourning, they're tending to the guests and people who have come, and she hears, someone says, Jesus is in the area, and she kind of you know, quietly leaves the house to go find him. The house is filled with mourners, people there to console the family, 
but she's got stinging words for Jesus. She wants to track Jesus down. She wants to give Jesus a piece of her heart and her mind. Now, for some of you whose situation has gone past the point of no return, maybe you feel that. Maybe you've had stinging words for God. If you haven't said them, maybe you felt them. You felt those stinging words for God. You felt like you wanted to, like if God was manifested in a human form in front of you, you would really, really lay it all out on the table and express your frustration and anger and hurt. All this time, her heart is aching. It's almost ready to burst. Especially, you know what's hard about faith and what's hard about trials and tribulations? Is if you really believe God is who he says he is, it's hard when things fall apart because you know God could have prevented it. Right? Like, that's the hard part. Like, if God was, like, like semi-sovereign or, like, semi-omnipotent, he could have just been like, look, this one got by me, guys. I'm sorry. And you'd be like, all right, well, next time. We'll just... we'll." Tr- We'll try again next time, right? Like, but because you have this knowledge that God is sovereign, utterly, absolutely sovereign, omnipotent, and he can do all things, like this is, this, is the, this is the challenge with suffering. And we're not the first ones to think about it, right? This is, in some ways, in some ways the Bible is, from, from Genesis to Revelation, is this huge book trying to deal with the issue of suffering. I mean, from the very first pages of Genesis, it is a way to grapple with and account for why things are so messed up in the world and in our lives. And so she tracks Jesus down, and she wants to lash out, and she does. And the moment she sees him, she spews out, Where were you, Jesus? I mean, the disciples may have been thinking. You know, her face is, her nose is red. She's been crying, filled with emotion. She can't hold it back any longer, right? Like, like any semblance of pious, religious, proper, you know, behavior is just gone. And she just shouts out, where were you, Jesus? You know, if you had been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. And what jumps out at you from this passage is the heartbreak of delay. Because it's often what we feel in our trials when God is either silent or simply doesn't act. And it can make you feel that God doesn't really love you when he delays. It's the heartbreak of delay. It's interesting that This is prefaced before we get here in the passage that says Jesus really loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. So he stayed where he was for two more days. It's as if he delays because he loves them, but she doesn't know that, right? She doesn't know that. We don't know that. Because when something bad happens in our lives, rarely does God act immediately. Now, some of us have testimony that, like, you saw God just move quickly. And, like, that's, praise the Lord. Like, that's ideal. That's preferable. We see something bad on the horizon. We pray. Boom. God moves and works it all out. I think we all have some testimonies like that. I do. And, and it's a great thing to see God answer a prayer so quick. But often when things happen, God rarely acts immediately. Instead, He waits, and in the waiting period, your faith kind of goes on life support. 
You know, the trust and confidence you have, it's like barely hanging on in those delays. I'm not talking about a little thing. I'm talking about something heavy. You know, the heavy things in life, the heartbreaking things in life, where you're praying, 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 and it's like, hello out there. And your faith, it, like it goes on life support. It's like it's hooked up to the machines. It, it's just barely hanging on. And there's pain in the delay. God often delays at answering prayers. He delays at solving our problems. He delays often at giving us the relief we want from our suffering. And he never seems to be in a hurry about anything. Now, growing up in church, I used to hear this saying, a divine delay is not a no. Has anyone, anyone ever heard this before? A divine delay is not a no. I'm grateful for that saying I heard growing up in church. It means that God has the prerogative to make you wait while he works out his sovereign plans, which often involves stretching our faith. God often delays. He has the prerogative to make you wait while he works things out, and in the process, he is stretching and growing your faith. Like God's got that right as God to do that. And the strengthening of our faith, certainly the strengthening of the faith of Mary and Martha and all the disciples present, was all in the waiting. The strengthening of their faith was wrapped up all in the waiting. It was all in the delay. The, the, the whole, this is the most extreme miracle Jesus does in the Gospels. I mean, Jesus is doing miracles, he's healing people, he, but, but this Lazarus miracle is the most extreme. And, and the reason why, it's, it's, it's called Jesus' biggest miracle, because it anticipates and precipitates his own death and resurrection. I mean, Lazarus did not drift off into death, and then he was revived, as if Jesus did a spiritual one of these I mean, he was good and dead. This is an extreme miracle. And what makes it so extreme is because Jesus pushes everybody. He pushes everybody right to the limit. I mean, it's, it's funny. It's like, it's like the breaking point. You know, for those of you who have been into, like, weightlifting, you know that often the muscles don't grow until they're, like, traumatized and almost damaged. In, but but it's, you got to be careful because if you do it too much, you can, like, tear and irrevocably destroy a muscle. But the truth is, is muscles really don't grow unless you really push them to the limit and, and, and kind of tear them apart and, and break them down, and then they rebuild. And so Jesus pushes everyone to the limit. The delay, them, the, the, the delay then, is, like, the supreme act of love. The delay is not indifference. The delay is not um, God busy with other things. It's like an act of love. Because God knows what longing in the heart does for gratitude. Like anything that comes really easy, the gratitude factor is just not there like it is when you've longed and waited and hoped for something for a long time. I'm kind of going through that right now. There's something in my life that Maribel and I are longing for deeply. And there are a lot of difficulties in front of us. And so, like, the only answer I can, like, come up with is, like, like when God answers and moves, like, we're going to have such a sense of gratitude. But in the meantime, we're just like, is anybody out there? It can feel that way. And so God delays. And Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha sort of sar sarcastically says, yeah, yeah, I know that. On the day of the resurrection, the last day, yeah. 
right? I hope I'm helping you to read this story a little differently. It's not a, yes, Lord, I know in the resurrection he will. I mean, she's, she's at her wit's end. She's emotionally torn apart. And so her, her statement's kind of sarcastic. Yeah, I know that. On the, on the res- day of the resurrection, the last day, she's really saying, I wanted you to prevent this horrible thing from ever happening. And Jesus continues saying, I'm the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And then Jesus asked her a really pointed question. Martha, do you believe this? And Martha responds, yes, Lord, I believe. I mean, it's, it's like the only thing she can say is, yeah, I believe it. Yeah, I believe it, yeah. That's all she can say. And now it's her sister's turn. Martha tells her sister that she's just met with Jesus and now he's asking to see her and without a word, Mary jumps to her feet and bolts out of the house and she needs to see Jesus. And when Mary encountered Jesus, the text says she drops to her knees in front of him. And I can imagine tears coursing down her already chapped cheeks. You know, for days now she's been doing this, you know. And her cheeks are probably chapped. They didn't have the Kleenex with aloe in them back in those days. You know, she's got like a rough cloth or something. She's wiping her. And she falls on her knees when she encounters Jesus, falls right in front of him. And boldly states the same exact statement to Jesus. Lord, if you had been here, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And her pain causes her to blame Jesus for Lazarus' death. Because both her and her sister believe that their brother's death could have been prevented. From their perspective, none of this had to happen. And that is the real disconnect and dissonance we have with God's sovereign plans in our life. Because we see like the straight line from A to B. We're like, boom, no, God, do this, do that. Let's get, let's get where we're going. And God says, no, we're going to do this, and then we're going to do that. And we're going to go like this, and we're going to go like that, and that, and that, and that, and that. And we'll get there, but I've got, I've got like a detour for you. Because her, her thing is like, this never should have happened in the first place. And that's the frustration and the anger. And that is the, frust- that is the hurt in every trial. And like with our heads, we can know, look, trials grow us. Trials are good for us. Trials increase our faith. Yes, we know that. But like in, in the real lived experience of emotional reality, that is just not how trials and tribulations play out on the heart. You know? Now, when you're coming to the end of a trial, your heart kind of gets with the program and looks back and goes, yeah, that was probably good I went through that. They're going to get there too. But like the whole story is them not being there yet. The power of this miracle is everything that happens in between and then the event itself. They lashed out. They were resentful because they just couldn't see what God saw. 
You know, my father died last July. I had a kind of a resentment toward God. It wasn't like a, I resent you. I certainly didn't say anything with my mouth. But in my heart, I just had these, these feelings. Because my dad died in this stinky, run-down, convalescent home in California for people with crappy insurance. It wasn't the nice convalescent home. It was the one where the people tending to him probably weren't even nurses, if you know what I mean. And, like, the, the place stunk. And my dad's, like, in this room by himself down the hall. You know, he's not Asa Dayu, my father. He's, like, the patient in room B61. That's it, right? Because they've got lots of patients. And you can't blame them. But, like, that's how it went down. And my dad is discovered at 4 in the morning dead, alone in a room, his emaciated 6'3 body. You know, his frame. This, my dad was a huge guy, always really strong. And he could lift a, a log, you know, a tree log on his shoulder, and did, you know, for many years. He worked in construction. <clears throat> and so, like, my resentment, I, I felt this sense of resentment. Like, Lord, couldn't you have done something, right? Because my dad ran out of resources. He just didn't have the money for better care. Like, Dick Cheney's had 48 heart attacks, and he's still kicking, and he'll probably live to 110. And my dad, who's 70, you know, he would have been 76, he just didn't have the resources. If he had more money, he would have had better care. He wasn't hooked up to, was not hooked up to any machines at all. He was just on a bed. Like, is that what you do with people who are sick and elderly? You just put them in a bed in some stinky room? Oh, apparently. And so my resentment was, Lord, why couldn't he have had more money? Why, why couldn't you have made a way and somehow magically, like supernaturally, bless someone to show him the favor and say, don't worry about it. We're putting you in this A-rated facility. And so I had this resentment in my heart. Like, where were you, God? I didn't do it with my mouth, but in my heart, I lashed out, you know? In my thoughts, I lashed out. In verse 33, when Jesus sees her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit. So Jesus sees all the people crying he sees all the mourners, and he himself is overcome with mourning. He himself is overcome with, you know, with emotion, seeing all of these people. And he says, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. We expect Jesus to be the, the strong figure, but Jesus weeps. I don't know if that was encouragement or discouragement to the people there. Like the one who is supposed to fix it all himself is crying. I don't know, but he wept. Jesus wept. When Mary, Martha, and the rest of us, I think, struggle to grasp is the fact that God is present with us even during our times of pain and grief. He doesn't fix it from a distance he comes in, he enters in, and he mourns with them. And that's profound, because it means that God is present in our suffering and in our grief. He's present in our times of pain. It means when God delays, he has not abandoned us. That a delay does not mean that God is not with us. When God lets bad things happen, he's not indifferent to our pain. He's not indifferent to our pain, even though sometimes he may be silent. Even though sometimes he may not necessarily fix the situation, 
He is present. He feels the pain we feel, and he's not indifferent. And we need to hear that. When we weep, we can confidently say that because he loves us, he weeps also. That God weeps with us. He mourns with us. Because the time where all things are going to be fixed hasn't happened yet, but it will. And so God, in his timing, allowing this wicked and dark age to play itself out until that judgment, when he puts all things to rights, in the meantime, God mourns with us. Because of this fallen and broken world, he weeps with us. He doesn't just snap his fingers and fix everything immediately or prevent anything from ever going wrong, but he enters into the darkness of this world and stands shoulder to shoulder with us, and that is what the incarnation of Christ is all about. That is what the Son of God coming to the earth and living a life just like you and I, that is what it is all about. It is all about the fact that God, until he fixes this world, enters into this world and suffers with us. And Jesus does suffer. Jesus comes to the cave where Lazarus is buried and speaks words of life with a commanding voice. One of the commentators I read this week said, Jesus says with a roaring voice. He roars, Lazarus, come forth. Loud, roaring. And it says in verse 44 that the man who died came out his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth like a mummy. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now, the very next verse doesn't say anything about what Mary and Martha and the whole community felt at that moment. In fact, in John's gospel, which is different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke, from John's point of view, this is the miracle that actually gets Jesus killed. It is. In John's gospel, this particular miracle, because it was so powerful, because it caused so many people to believe, because you can imagine what Mary and Martha and the community of people mourning for Lazarus did and said and reacted when Lazarus rises, it spreads like wildfire. I mean, the Jesus movement at that moment just explodes and the religious leaders say, we got to kill him. Because everyone is believing at that point. Like, like Lazarus dies so that the gospel, in a, in a very fundamental way, reaches a next level. And in the ears of the people who hear it, and in the eyes of the people who knew Lazarus and knew he was good and dead, it just takes off. And it actually, in the mind of the religious leaders, that is the impetus for them that says he has to die. This story is important. This story is really important. Jesus says Lazarus. He calls him by name. New Testament scholar D.A. Carson, who's one of my favorite scholars, says, even though it's not John's point, it's often been remarked that the authority of Jesus is so great that had he not called Lazarus by name, all the tombs would have given up their dead. His authority is so great that all the tombs would have given up their dead had he not called Lazarus by name. And it just ends this way. It just says, you know, the man who died came out. Each one of you, each one of us, 
was dead in trespasses and sins. The call to Lazarus is really the gospel call to every one of us who is dead in trespasses and sins. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says that sinners are dead in trespasses and sins. They themselves cannot do anything to affect their own health and well-being. There isn't a behavior modification that you can do to make yourself better. That only Jesus can call us out from that state of spiritual death and give us life, just like he calls to Lazarus. And if you're here this morning and you're a believer, and you believe that Jesus died for your sins, it isn't because one day you just decided you were going to follow God. It's because somehow, some way, Jesus called your name and gave you spiritual life. That's the only reason. It is all by grace. It is all by mercy. It's not because you said, you know, I just decided one day I was going to stop living that old life and Maybe that's how it like unpacked itself. You did have those emotions, but it's because he called. And he said to dead men and dead women like us, come out. Let's pray. Father, now we do thank you because we know that you're present with us even as there are circumstances that delay and linger in our lives that just don't seem right. We know that you are with us. Help our hearts to overcome the discouragement of what often feels like silence. Lord, we look to Jesus with a certain knowledge that you entered into this world and suffered. That the life you lived was a life of perfect obedience to the rules and the laws of God. And in our place, you suffered and died. In our place, you lived a perfect life of holiness and righteousness. And now the Father looks to the Son's perfect act of obedience and perfect death on the cross in our place. And it is for that reason alone that we are not spiritually dead because you called us out by name. You saved us. You brought us back from the dead. Lord, not to minimize the truth and reality of resurrection, we look forward to the fact that even our mortal bodies, which will die, will one day rise. Help us to see and to appreciate in the story of Lazarus a foretaste of your own resurrection, which guarantees that death will be swallowed up in victory one day for all of us. We pray these things in the name of your Son. Amen.